Welcome to More Bank for Your Buck with our special guest this week, banking technology specialist, Chris Tracy. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for joining. Well, thank you for having me. Chris, I've known you for a couple years now, ever since I came here to Equitable, and I know you do a lot of things for the bank, especially in our systems and processes. But give me a little bit of your background, how you got into banking, and how you came to help us here at Equitable. Well, in the, uh, I would say, early 1990s, uh, I started working for a bank. Um, it's, it's funny, I remember when I first started there, it was a large bank. It was about a $7 billion bank. It was Union Planners Bank at the time. And uh, I was walking through, and I had maybe six or seven people ask me what my goal was at the bank. And I answered at that time to all of them, well, I want to be the CEO of a bank. Uh, I'm much smarter now. But then I, I said, I want to be the CEO of a bank. Uh, and I, I tracked along at that at a pretty good clip. And then in 1999, this crazy thing happened in the world. Um, it was called Y2K. I don't know if you've ever heard of oh, it. I remember. I remember. So, you know, Y2K, the general public was certain, certain that the banking industry on January 1st, 2000, was going to lose all their data, was going to lose all their information. I mean, they're going to they're go into the bank, you're going to try to make a withdrawal, and they're, you're either going to be past due 100 years on your loan, or they're not going to have any of your uh, account information. It was kind of, it was, it, was, it was an interesting time. I mean, the Fed at that time printed $50 billion more dollars just because so many people were worried about this. So I, I sorry to interrupt you there, but they, they really didn't know. They didn't know what was going to happen when the clock rolls over and we go to 2000. They had no idea what was really going to happen. Well, yeah, because all computer programs were written to just have two-digit years. So it would, if, you, if you had June 15th, 46, it would default to 1946. So they thought when it went over to 2000, instead of being 2000, it was going to go back to 1900. Oh, no. And uh, it was... It was there was some sheer panic in there. But anyways, during that time, banks probably from 1998 starting on, I think the number was, and I hate to throw numbers out there, but I think the number was around $8 billion that banks and bank technology companies spent to know this wasn't going to be an issue. And from a bank's perspective, because I was working at a bank's perspective, it was probably June of 1999 that we had already tested so many things we knew there wasn't going to be an issue. But the general public was going crazy. Um, but during that time, I decided, you know, maybe I don't want to be the CEO of a bank anymore. Maybe I want to work on the technology side, the bank technology side, so different products and services. Um, so it was at that time, early 2000, that me and my wife packed our bags and headed to Florida, and I went to go work for a bank technology company. Um, and that was, that was kind of exciting because, honestly, Y2K, while it caused a bunch of disruption, it really changed how bank technology companies were working because they had to go in and reprogram everything. So it opened up all these new possibilities. And, and that, to me, was exciting, way more exciting than running a bank. Um, so I did that for probably about 17 years. And then I decided I was done with that. Uh, and I needed to go back and work for a bank. I had a prior relationship with Equitable Bank from my years on the technology side. Um, I like what Equitable Bank was doing. I like the people at Equitable Bank. And... So it's brought me to 2022, and I'm sitting here with you. Very good. Thanks for that background. I, I vaguely remember Y2K. You know, I was a younger person at that time, but I remember riding in the vehicle with my parents 
and hearing them talk about what's going to happen. So I, I vaguely remember this, but you know, I think I was 12 years old at the time. So whether my bank account went from $7 to $0 didn't really much matter to me. But I appreciate you bringing that story up. It's funny you say that because that would be, I said several times to customers that would come into the bank. I was a branch manager at the time. And I had several people that would come in and say, you know, what are we going to do? And I thought, well, let's see. Me and Kathy have this mortgage that's a couple hundred thousand. And we have a checking account with about $200 in it. I say on January 1st, if they both vanish, I'm okay with that. You're okay with that. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> Some reassurance for your average folks. But, you know, you, you started really, when I think of Y2K in 2000, I think of dot-com bubble, but I really think of the advent of a digital revolution for the entire world. I mean, that, that's when, you know, internet access becomes more prevalent for billions of people around the world. And to me, that was really the large start of digital banking, banking technology. In the past 22 years now, how has banking changed? Because you've been there at the ground floor with banks rewriting their programming, rewriting the code for all of their systems and processes. Take, walk me through from 2000 to today, how has banking changed? Well, I might show my age on this, but I would, I would say I think a good example would be we're starting in 2000 with the Flintstones and now we're to the Jetsons. I mean, it, it has been a major change in just the last 20 years. Uh, you start with, with, we'll just start with the basic checks. Everyone thinks about a check at a bank. So you think about a check. I mean, in, in the early or the mid-1990s, you could go to the grocery store on Monday. You could write them a check pay for your groceries, and be pretty confident that that check wasn't going to clear before you got paid on Friday. I mean, that, that was, that was, it was, it was float, and that's what happened. And I think people have a, a misunderstanding of how checks process, but it still took time for a check to, to process. Nowadays, you go to a place, if they even take a check, sometimes they'll hand you the check back, and it's already deducted from your account. So that, you know, just that piece in a short period of time, that, that's a big difference. You think about debit cards in the, the 90s, debit cards were relatively new. My wife swore she'd never be able to use a debit card, but she caught on to that real quick. Um, but you used to be on a debit card. It was an application. You know, everyone gets a debit card today, but it was, sure. it was, you had to have an application. You had to get approved. It was probably harder to get a debit card in 1995 than it is to get a credit card in 2022. Uh, and the reason for that is... Your debit cards weren't really real-time back then. It was, they were really only updated probably on Tuesdays and Fridays at most financial institutions. So whatever your balance was on Tuesday, or whatever your balance was, well, we'll use Friday. So whatever your balance was on Friday was what you could use your card for on Saturday, on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday. Uh, and for that reason, that's why banks were pretty stingy on who could have a debit card, and your limits on a debit card were very low. We're talking a couple hundred dollars probably. You're not going to Home Depot and buying a fridge back then. But just the evolution of debit cards, the evolution of checks. You talk about online banking. I mean, online banking in, in early or mid-1990s, there were a few banks that had it. It was very basic. But by 2000, 
2001, 90% of banks had an online banking product. Nowhere near what you see today. I mean, you had online banking, you could see a, you could see a, a deposit. Uh, you made a deposit. You couldn't see the deposit. You could see a check. Um, you, but you, that check cleared, but you couldn't actually see the check. You couldn't transfer money. You couldn't do all that stuff. But it, it came along, and then um, maybe the first real big thing to banking would have been around 2003 with this thing called Check 21. Do you know anything about Check 21? I, I have heard of Check 21 legislation, and typically that's one of those things where I just nod my head and smile and say, oh, yeah, Check 21, I remember that. Well, to a, to a lot of bank customers, all Check 21 meant was when I get my monthly statement now, instead of having the physical copies of checks, I'm going to have a photocopy of the checks. Um, but to a bank, it meant all sorts of avenues were open. Um, not to mention the millions and millions of dollars they saved taking a check from this state to this state to this state back to the bank. Um, but just, it opened up, probably the biggest thing was internet banking. It opened up the ability to see your checks online. That, that was not something that you could do prior to 2004. Uh, you know, in 2003, if you needed a copy of a check, you, you pretty much waited until you got your statement, and you took your check, and you went and showed them. Uh, now you can log on line banking and see a copy of your check. And then to your business customers, this was a, bil- a big benefit for them because most of your businesses would take checks throughout the day, um, probably hold them till Friday, go to the bank on Friday and deposit the checks. Now with Check 21, banks would go to them and say, here's this scanner. So as you take the check, put it in this scanner and it'll deposit to the bank. And that was, that was pretty exciting. Let's talk a little bit more about checks. One thing that's surprised me during my tenure in banking is how strongly consumers, businesses, individuals hold on to the ability to write checks. I don't know in terms of percentage of payment volume in the United States what processes through paper checks, physical checks, but I'm assuming it's a very large percent of transactions yet. And I always had the conversation with people saying, you know, you don't like carrying cash because, you know, cash can be risky. And I understand that once you lose your hundred dollar bill, it's gone. You, you know, you can't go get that back. But if, if people think about what's on a check, I mean, it, it, I remember my grandmother writing checks and having her date of birth, her driver's license, her address, phone number, routing number, an account number, all on that check that she was handing to whoever would take a check at the time. And I don't think people realize the amount of personal identifiable information is on that check. I mean, I know people that had their driver's license printed on the checks rather than just writing it on there when you made out the check. Some people would have their social security number on the check. That can't be a good idea. That can't be good. <laughs> absolutely cannot be a good idea. When we, when we talk about fraud, is the percentage of fraud higher with physical paper checks? Are we still seeing more fraud on the electronic side? Talk a little bit about the security of checks instances of fraud, what we're seeing on the technology side? Well, checks are, are a unique uh, instrument, and uh, I do think the volume has gone down a bit. Um, and a lot, a lot of fraud that used to happen with checks, banks have put technology in place to help with that. Um, for, for example, you know, if, if a business has, has checks, especially at Equitable, you know, we have a product called, called Positive Pay. So the business would say, I've got check number one, two, three, 
going to fill for $500, if that check tries to process the bank for anything other than that, it'll reject. So that's a nice, a nice tool that's in place. But not everyone has positive pay, and not everyone will use positive pay. And, um, you know, I, there, there are just system things in place on check fraud that uh, we try to look in the back end. You know, if, if someone has a check for $10,000 and they've never written a check for more than $1,000 in the last five years, that'll, that'll reject, uh, and we'll take a look at it. Sure. Um, but, I, you know, I think most people have started to adapt like an online banking bill pay um, where they're not writing the check as much and they're using bill pay. You know, if you use a bill pay at your bank, if there's a problem with that transaction, you can go to your bank to help you. As opposed to if you put a check in the mail and send it to American Express, you can't call us to help dispute that charge. That's between you and American Express. But if you use our bill pay, you can call us and we can help you. One thing that I, shamefully I was a little bit late to adapt was peer-to-peer payments. I think two of the more popular ones right now are Venmo and Zelle. And my understanding is, you, you know, you attach your bank account to these platforms. It would allow me to you know, instantly send you $10, $15, $20. Maybe we're splitting the check at lunch or whatever it might be. I understand that when I put in my information that it takes the money out of my account. I understand that it works. But how does it work? How, how do... Uh, Venmo and Zelle, how do they connect to the bank? How are they able to send that money so quickly on a peer-to-peer basis? Well, it's it's through ACH, so Automated Clearinghouse. Um, and so they piggyback through the ACH network. They just speed things up a little bit. Uh, and they, they all work a little bit different. So you need to, you need to decide, you know, when, I, when I, anyone asks me about peer-to-peer networks, um, you need to research them and look at them and, and understand what you're signing up for, because they all work a little different. Um, you know, Zelle is really ran by banks, um, and, it's, and it goes through the banking industry, and it goes through um, our ACH industry. But Zelle works when, when I pay you, if it's noon, and I pay you $12 at noon, you have $12 in your bank account. Um, but there are some limitations with Zelle, like you can't use a credit card. For it, and you can't keep any money in Zelle. Um, and the person that you're sending it to in Zelle needs to also be in Zelle. So if I was going to send you $20 and you weren't in Zelle, um, you'd have to sign up for it or you're not going to get the $20. Now, Venmo, on the other hand, is really not a banking product. It's an outside, it's owned by PayPal, um, but it's an outside product. But Venmo has, you can use your credit card with it, uh, and you can keep money in Venmo. So if I send you $5,000 in Venmo. Please do. Yeah, I could. You could take that money in Venmo and go to a grocery store and use a a Venmo electronic virtual credit card and pay for your groceries. It stays there in Venmo. If you want to move it to your bank account, though, it's a one to three day process to move it to your bank account. Or you could pay a fee and, and move it to your bank account for a fee. What I, would, what I would suggest to customers is when you're, when you're doing a peer-to-peer payment, I mean, I'm on Venmo. You can send me money on Venmo. Um, so is 500 other Chris Tracy's. So if you send it to the wrong Chris Tracy, that Chris Tracy just got money. And you can go to your bank and you can ask your bank to help you. And at Equable, we will definitely try to help you. But if you send the money to the wrong person, you're probably not getting the money back. It's gone. 
But if you go on Venmo and you're actually purchasing something, there's a button there that says, is this for a good or service? And if you say yes, and I don't know why people don't. If you say yes, then, you know, the end result is the seller is going to get a little bit less money. But now you can go to Venmo and say, hey, I ordered this purse and I didn't get it. Now I can, now I can go to Venmo and I can have a dispute process with Venmo. But if I don't click that button, it's a small little button, but if I don't click that button, I'm probably out the money. So I would say that's very similar to that of interchange with a credit or debit card. So if I have a, a Visa branded credit card, I go swipe that credit card at Walmart or wherever I'm buying something. And let's say my bill is $50. I think most people understand that Walmart's not getting $50. They're getting $48 and some odd change because of the, the interchange, you know, the use of the system, the rails of the transfer of money. But I believe there's a portion of that that goes back just for those instances of fraud. Someone stole my card or whatever it might be, because I, I know that, you know, in this case, Visa would be liable for fraudulent transactions. So I wasn't aware that through Venmo, there's actually that same type of interchange fee that helps to go bolster that fraud prevention. So that's, that's good to know. I, I mean, I've used Venmo for a couple of years and I had no idea that that button even existed. It's probably in the last, I mean, everything's evolving. So it's probably in the last year or so that that's came up. But I mean, the, the key thing to remember is if you sign up for Venmo or Zelle or Cash App or Google Pay or any of these, is you're, you're accepting that you're 100% responsible for that transaction. That's important for people to know because I, I always like to think that outside of a cash transaction, there's a paper trail, whether it's an electronic paper trail or a physical paper trail with a check, or which I guess would be digital now, but there's, there's still that, that path to show where the money has gone. And I think that's what cryptocurrency and blockchain technology is trying to further emphasize. But when we think about the security of transactions and knowing where money originates from and where it's headed to, one of the, one of the first things that comes to my mind is well, wire transfers. That's got to be one of the safest ways to send money. But in recent years, when we are talking in our meetings at the bank about instances of fraud and fraud to a large degree, you know, six figure fraud type transactions, they're almost inevitably a wire-based transaction. Talk a little bit about how our customers can help to protect themselves working with us, and we'll do everything we can to help them as well, from fraud in wire transactions. Because typically when people are sending wires, they're not sending wires for $50. They're sending wires for $50,000 or some number even greater than that. What can they do to make sure that the money gets to where it's supposed to go? Well, for starters, it's, it's um, where you're accessing your financial institutions, online banking. That's when I, when I think about that, there, there are public Wi-Fi's and there are private Wi-Fi's and I'll, I'll try and, you know, a public Wi-Fi would be you're at a hotel and you're using their Wi-Fi. You're at a library, you're using their Wi-Fi. You're at a coffee shop, you're using their Wi-Fi. Um, that's a public Wi-Fi. And I would, I would suggest that you don't access your banking information in a public Wi-Fi area. A great example from the wires would be if I'm at if I'm at the local coffee shop, I'm on their public Wi-Fi, and I'm looking at my bank account information, and I'm emailing. I got my email up. Well, this person sitting over here is hacked into what I'm doing. So while I'm sitting here looking at my information, they're sending an email to the bank that says, "Please wire fifty thousand dollars from my account to this place." So once it gets to the bank. You know, the banks have option A or option B. I mean, option A is our customer sent us a, a wire authorization. Let's send it. Uh, option B is our customer sent us a wire authorization. 
I'm going to call them, ask them about it, and verify that they really wanted to do that. That takes a couple minutes time, but it verifies that, that they're actually wanted to send the wire, um, and it's legit. Option A, we send it, the money's gone. I mean, a wire transfer, we talk about P2P, but a wire transfer, I mean, once you send the money, it's gone. Is there any way to retract it? Let's say you, you sent too much money, you had a digit wrong, something happened. Is there a period of time that there's a pullback on that? <laughs> well, if you had something, if you had information wrong, then yes, it would, it would most likely be rejected. Okay. Um, if you had all the information right, there's, there's a slight chance you could get that back. Um, but 99% of the time, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah, it's gone, especially if fraud's involved. I mean, the way the, way the wire fraud and even, even some payments and debit card fraud is a fraudster goes to a business that doesn't know they're being hacked and sets up an account. And then they're wiring money to that business. So it's a valid business that they're wiring money to. So they hack into your account, send money to this account that they've hacked into, and they pull the money out. So as soon as they get it, they pull it out. Um, the banks do have some friendly friendliness going on that if someone called us, for example, to Equal and said, hey, we think this wire was sent, we'd look and see is the money still there. And if the money's still there, then there's your slight chance. Sure. Um, and that's normally a friendly error. But a fraudulent error is, it's, it's normally just gone. As soon as that wire hits the account, the fraudster... They're waiting yeah. for that money, and they're probably sending it to two or three different other banks in a chain to try to muddy the water so it's harder to get that money right. back. So the key, the key is definitely where are you accessing your, your bank information, and, and you need to be in a secured site. And some people think, I'm at home. I'm, I'm at home on my Wi-Fi, uh, and that would be considered a private network because you're at home. But, but think about at your home Wi-Fi, do you have that secured with a password? Because a lot of people don't. So if it's not secured with a password, then you're not really safe on your home Wi-Fi either. And then what is the password? Is it a password? That's, you know, you would well, be... I'll have to change my password you, at home you now. Would, you would be absolutely shocked the amount of people whose password is password. Guilty. Or password one. Or their dog's name. What, what about a guest network? So let, most people with modern Wi-Fi routers, they've got their, their home networks, whether it's a 5G network or whatever, but there's typically a guest network, and it's almost inevitably never secured. If someone taps into your guest network that isn't secured, can they? And, but all your PCs and phones and everything in the house are on the secured network. Can they bridge the gap and get your information? They can. So you really need if you're if you're using what you what you need is to make sure your router is always up to date with the latest security software. I would almost guarantee ninety percent of the people listening to this present company included that I have not updated my router since I installed it four years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, another thing is is that there are pieces of security. So I'll, I'm going to go on a tangent here on one thing because I think it's it's interesting. But you know, you have a cell phone. Sure. Everybody has okay. a cell phone. So on a cell phone, they have those blocks. You know, the blocks where you plug you plug it into the outlet and you plug your cell phone into the block. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? That block is a protector. So you go to the airport and they have just USB ports and you plug in to the USB port and okay. you plug it into your phone, that could be hacked. But if you just use the block, that block will stop it. It's just like a, a surge protector. 
You know, a surge protector. If the, you, the, so on, on an iPhone, you get, well, they don't give it to you anymore, but the little white block that you plug your USB yeah. into, that stops people from hacking your well, phone? Well, that's, that's a protector. I mean, it doesn't completely stop, but that's a protector that if someone's hacked into, if someone, it's much harder for someone to hack into your phone if you're using your block than if you don't use your block. It's just a suggestion that you should always use your block. I had no idea. I mean, because so many places anymore, they're going to, I know exactly what you're talking about, uh, restaurants, bars, lounges, airports, because everybody always has their phone cable with them. They might pull it out of their vehicle or whatever, but you never have the, the 110 adapter with it. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just not a good idea to access your banking information with, in a public spot or if you're on your phone without using the block, if you're plugged it into a USB port. Um, it's convenient. Wi-Fi is convenient everywhere. It still doesn't make it right to log in and do f- banking information in public Wi-Fi, but it's there. I mean, a lot of fraud happens. Um, fraudsters are just are just intelligent. Sure. I mean, I think we talked the other day about the Catch Me If You Can. Remember uh, yeah. the movie Catch Me If You Can and the check fraud? I mean, there's a reason why the government hired him to help with check fraud. He knew how to do it. Because fraudsters are smart. Right. Well, we talked about checks. We've talked about wire transfers. I would say the vast majority of our consumers at the bank and, and nationwide, most transactions are done on a card, it seems to me. Most people aren't carrying cash anymore. Most people are using a credit or a debit card. And knock on wood, I've never had fraud on my credit card, debit card, whatever it is. But I know a lot of people who have. They've gotten onto their online banking. They've noticed there's three or four transactions to places they've never even heard of. How easy or how difficult is it to have fraudulent transactions on a card? How, how do they perpetrate the fraud? Is it you know from a data dump somewhere where they're hacking the vendors that you're buying from? How does it work? Well, it can, it can work a lot of different ways. I mean, there's data breaches that, that I'm sure you, that you've heard of. Um, and a data breach is that you've got a company that stores all your credit card information or debit card information, and someone hacks into the system and gets the card numbers. Um, there are skimmer devices that a fraudster will go to an ATM or they'll go to a gas station pump or they'll go to one of these places and they'll put this little device in, and you don't even notice that it's there. You put your card in and it has a copy of your card. Um, they even have cameras that are on those sometimes that if you put in your card and you enter your PIN number, now they have your card and your PIN number. And what's interesting about that, I think there's some people may or may not understand, is that a lot of times, you know, if you get fraud on your card, you, you could have done nothing wrong. It could be that I, that I bank with, you know, I, I'm, I'm with a bank, I have a debit card, my card gets compromised. So when my card gets compromised, the fraudsters have my card number. Uh, and once they have my card number, they're going to write this program that's going to have hundreds of different options for cards, and it's going to come through with a bunch of different card numbers. And then I'm going to hack into a business and say I'm going to do a penny transaction to this card. And it's eventually going to start hitting some numbers. So they're just guessing. The they're just guessing. Is just trying to generate random card numbers, and it's just a guess to see what sticks. Yeah. So when they see that this penny hits, I got this card. All right, now I'm going to try $100. Well, that works. Now I'm going to try $1,000. But that's, that's what the fraudsters do. They find one card. Uh, and, you know, up until a few years ago, I 
is. Let me let me back up. So when you have a debit card, each debit card is associated with a bank. It's got a bin number. It's a bank identification number. But each each card is associated with a bank. And so the first four cards or four numbers on a card are the same for every bank. So an equitable personal debit card, the first four numbers are the same. Uh, a equitable credit card, the first four numbers are the same. And each bank has that. And banks used to only have the last four numbers different. So the first eight were all the same, and it's just the last four. So if you, if you, if you go back and think about it, a hackster gets a valid card, and they're only trying to guess the last four numbers. So they do all these different programs in here, so they're going to catch some numbers. So what banks have done to offset that is now if you get a debit card, if you look at it, you'll realize it's not just the last four numbers. You know, it used to have 4114000000. Now though, all those zeros have numbers in them as cards are coming through to help with that. But the key, the key ingredient, especially with mobile banking these days, is, is you can have alerts set up on your phone. So if your debit card is used, you can get an alert that tells you it's been used. Well, I think in, in the sooner you realize there's a fraud, the better, because you can call your bank right away. I believe a lot of mobile apps have the ability to shut that card down on the spot. So you're on your phone, you get a notification that someone just spent $1,000 in the Cayman Islands, and you know it's not you, you can get on your app right away and you can shut that card off and stop further fraud from happening on your card. But what's the process of getting that money back? I mean, is that a visa thing? Is that a bank thing? How do you, I mean, if, they, if the $1,000 is gone, how do you get it back? Yeah, so if $1,000 is gone, you, you will go to your bank uh, and you will let them know that, hey, this is fraud. Uh, and there, it's, it's either a fraud transaction or it's a non-fraud transaction because some some transactions would be, you know, it, fraud is definitely $1,000 that came in islands. I didn't do that. Then there are non-fraud transactions where I bought this purse online and it never showed up. That's a non-fraud transaction. But it's the same concept that you'll go to your bank. Uh, and there are regulations that protect you that if you go to your bank and you say it's fraud and I didn't do this transaction, you'll, be, you'll get a provisional credit right away. Uh, and then the dispute process will happen it normally has to be resolved within 60 to 90 days. Uh, and they'll come back with a verdict of, you know, here's a photo that you were in Cayman Isles, or, or <laughs> which happens more than you would think, um, or it's no, you weren't, you weren't there. You know, and we try to put things in place to make life easier for our customers. So we, we have a great fraud system at Equitable Bank, and we, we try to catch this so that you wouldn't have a $1,000 charge there. Um, if you do a transaction that seems out of the ordinary for you. So if you've, if you've never been out of Nebraska and suddenly you're in Hawaii making transactions, you'll get an, a call from us. Um, you'll get a text from us. You'll get a call from us. You'll get an email from us. Um, and you just have to respond. Did you do that or did you not do that? I, I actually was at Dillard's this week. Um, and I went to Dillard's and I handed them my debit card and I got a, it got declined, and my phone rang. No one ever answers phones anymore because they're all nervous about spam. But because I work in the bank and I understand, I thought, well, all right, my phone just happened to ring as soon as this declined. So I answered the phone, and it was my bank asking me if I was at Dillard's making a transaction. So I said yes. And then they ran the transaction again, and it worked. So what might be a nuisance to some of our customers and consumers when your card gets declined just know that it's it's not 
the bank trying to be a pain in the butt. It's the bank trying to identify your spending patterns. And, and I'm sure there's software in the background that notices that, you know, here's the gas stations you typically use. You live in Nebraska or wherever it is. And like you say, anytime I think when I travel, I think it's important to let the bank know, hey, I'm going to Colorado. I'm going to North Dakota or wherever it might be so that maybe you don't have some of those interruptions. But remember, it's it's there to protect you. It's there so that someone doesn't make off with two, three, four thousand $4,000 of your money before you realize, hey, this is fraud. I'm not in North Dakota right now. I'm still in Nebraska or wherever it might be. And I think it's really important for people to understand that a lot of these provisions that are put in place that might, again, seem like a nuisance from time to time are really there to help prevent the conversation of, I had $5,000 in my account and now I've got $50 in my account. What do I do? Yeah. And the bank's going to help you and you're going to get your money back, but it's still, it's still time consuming and it's still aggravating. Certainly. Um, but those, those are in places and, and you talked about Colorado. I mean, if you've, if you go to Colorado every other month, you don't have to call the bank anymore and say that I go to Colorado every month because you've built that history that you go to Colorado every month. But if you go to Kentucky and you've never been to Kentucky before, you need to let the bank know you're going to be Kentucky. Um, and if you're going out of the state or out of the country, you, you, you definitely want to let the bank know. We make that pretty easy here at Equitable. You, you go on your app and you say, I'm traveling. Right. Then you're traveling. One last thing before I let you go, Chris. I know you're very busy with a lot of things going on right now, and I appreciate you being here today. But a lot of the solutions we've talked about to helping prevent fraud or stem fraud once it's occurred start with a mobile app or an online banking interface. Talk to our listeners about, A, how secure is that mobile app or your online banking and the advances that have been just in the last couple of years with either the mobile app or an online banking interface that really make banking a more seamless transaction for them and a more secure transaction for them. Yeah, I mean, if you think about online banking and the mobile app, um, again, throwing a number out there, which I don't like to do, but I'm going to, because I think it's impressive. I mean, 200 million people logged into online banking last year. Now, is that in America? Or in, in, that, in, US, in the U.S. In the U.S., okay. So if you think about that, if you take, take people that are 18 or older, I mean, it's 75% of, of the people in the U.S. logged into online banking. That's a big number. That is a big number. So that number would tell you that it's probably pretty secure because a lot of people use it. But what you, what you need to do is, is, is just understand who you're talking with, understand where you're doing the app at. I mean, some small things, like, for example, whenever I get an email whether it's from my bank or from whoever that has a link on it. I always hover over the link before I click on the link. Because if you hover over the link, it'll tell you where it's coming from. So if it's saying it's coming from Equitable Bank, then somewhere on that link when you hover over it, it should say equitableonline.com. If it doesn't, it's not coming from Equitable Bank. Um, but I always do that because some places will say, well, click here and download our latest version of the app. Well, if you're going to download an app for a banking software, you really need to be going to the App Store or the Play Store or, or the is it iTunes right. uh, iTunes to click on that. So if you're, if you're making sure that you're on the right place when you're downloading the app, that's a good start. Um, the second piece of it is, the, te te the technology is built in there now with these phones that have extra security, you know, fingerprint, um, face ID, all that technology is there. Is, it makes it definitely harder if someone hacks into your phone 
to try and get to your banking information. So that's, that's great. But then we also have things behind the scenes. If someone's on a new device trying to log on to internet banking, it's, it's going to reject and they're going to have to answer a question. But your end, your end customer who has the app should always have their alerts turned on to know someone's logged into my internet banking. They get a message. If it's not you, call the bank. Well, Chris, I appreciate all your time this morning. You know, we've talked about a lot of different things. We talked about how banking has changed over the past 20 years. We've talked about checks, check writing, things you can do to help stem instances of fraud with your check writing. We've talked about mobile banking, wire transfers, peer-to-peer platforms. And again, to reiterate, there's a lot of things that the banking system in general has put in place to stop fraudulent transactions from happening, but they still occur. The reason fraudsters are so diligent at perpetrating fraud is because it works. I mean, if they weren't getting any money out of these attempts at fraud, they would probably stop because they'd go on to find something else to do. But there are, there are systems, there are checks in place to help prevent the fraud. And I just think it's very important for our customers and consumers to understand there are just those few three or four takeaways that you can do to lessen your chances of fraud tremendously, whether it's making sure you're on a secure network, the, the block on your phone charger. I never would have known that. I, I don't know why they don't tell people that, that that helps prevent fraudulent access to your devices, or whether it's a, a second verification from the bank, using a mobile app to let your bank know when you're traveling or whatever it might be. I just hope people could take away something here today that might save them from having that $1,000 transaction in the Cayman Islands that they didn't authorize And again, if you have an instance of fraud, make sure you've got a relationship with a local bank that you can call and help you walk through the process. I mean, I know there's identity theft protection out there and a lot of different online services to help navigate through a fraudulent transaction, but there's still a peace of mind that goes with having a local banker that you can stop in and say, hey, Chris, I don't know what happened. I can't get into my online banking. My account's zeroed out, whatever it might be. It's good to have that face to come in and say, we're here to help you. We can walk you through this. We'll get you made whole. We'll do what we can to get your life back on track. So I I really appreciate you bringing all those tips and useful information today. And thanks for joining us on More Bank for Your Buck. Chris. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on More Bank for Your Buck. Be sure to like, follow, and share our podcast. And if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the comments below. Until next time, this is More Bank for Your Buck. I want to thank our audience for joining us today on More Bank for Your Buck and looking forward to our next podcast together, Phil. Sounds great. Thanks, Errol. My pleasure. Thank you.